this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are taking our Patreon subscribers' votes and we are tallying them and we are letting them pick our album that we're going to be reviewing. Isn't that Excellent. cool? It is cool. Now, I have to, there's a disclaimer on this. Um, originally, I picked four albums that we were going to possibly review that were all released in September of 1996. So it would be 20 years ago that they were released. However, I, uh, I did not do my research as well as I had thought. So there's a caveat to our actual pick. So the majority of people picked Moby's Animal Rights. That's the album we're going to we're going to pick or we're going to review tonight. However, it was not released in the US in September of 96. Oh. It was released in the UK because he was on a UK label. Mhm. In fact, it was released in February of 1997. In the United States. However, hmm. we're going to overlook that, and we're just going to go ahead and, and review animal rights, even though I, I made that, you know, a little bit of a mistake there. Get it together, Tim. Jesus. I know. Well, I blame Wikipedia because I just went to their music of 1996 section, and in September it said that this album was released. So if you're going to yell at anybody, yell at Wikipedia. Hey, I have something slightly off topic I wanted to. Although I guess it could be a kind of topic. Okay. Did you see this? Um, did you see the um, Kanye West stage production? Uh, his tour? You were where he's like elevated above the audience. Yes. And yeah. did you see sort of any fan video of that? No. Okay. So uh, I make it no secret I am not a fan of his. Um, sure. I usually avoid talking about him or. In fact, I think I have his name blocked from Twitter just so I don't have to hear any of the anything about him. But right. I found this really interesting, and I think it has a bit of a '90s spin, maybe even relevant a bit to to Moby. In that, when I first saw the concept, my original sort of assumption was, well, this is going to be very much like. You know, he thinks of himself as like a deity and this is going to be like him floating above the clouds like God and people worshiping him. But when I watched the video of the crowd, like the crowd shot stuff, mm -hmm. the thing that was interesting is that they can't really see him. Like the people on the floor when he's above them, they, they don't really see him at all. And what ends up happening is that, and I don't know if they intended this or not. But it amplifies the whole like crowd as spectacle thing. So you've got like people on the floor below him, like rapping, doing his sort of performance for each other. Like you'll, you know what I mean? Like because they can't see him, they're just facing each other and just like they're all like singing the lyrics, but they're like performing it. Right. And it just hit me as like, wow. We're there. Like these live shows are no longer, are they're very much turning a corner to, and this I think started in the 90s, where this crowd is as much, 
it's as much about the crowd as it is it about the band. I don't know, that just hit me as like a major turning point that I wonder if rock bands are going to have to start embracing because I think traditional rock bands have been the slowest on the uptake of this trend of the it's an experience thing more so for the for the crowd and the crowd interacting with each other than it is like sitting and watching a band or a performer. So I don't know. I found it I found the whole thing like kind of changing or accelerating that paradigm around and wondering if if all shows are going to keep heading in that direction. Uh I would say no. Um you're dealing with a very specific artist and who doesn't have the the limitation of instruments. And... I don't mean everybody's going to float around on uh, on floating <laughs> stages. I just mean like when you're watching the show, you're like, this is as much about people interacting with each other as it is about him. You know what I mean? And very much at rock shows, I don't know, my experience is usually, especially arena rock shows, I can almost ignore everybody there. Like ne- maybe other than if you have somebody super obnoxious next to you, you sort of right. have to deal with them. But I can per- you can pretty much zone out the rest of the crowd and just focus on the stage. And this is not that at all. Like you are forced to, especially if you're on the floor, and probably I would think even in the arena, like watching what's going on under the stage is very much like watching a mosh pit or being in a mosh pit, which is I think or, for me or where the stage tied- diving that went on and yeah. You know, yes. where people try to become part of the performance. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. That's the connection for me to the 90s of when that stuff started to come in, I noticed it because I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I don't I don't need to be part of the show and I don't want to watch these knuckleheads. I like want to watch the band. So it, right. I've always struggled with that. And that's just that hasn't lacked in any popularity. I mean, that continues now. Um, so this was kind of like the next level of that, it seemed to, to me. Yeah, I don't have enough experience going to live shows anymore to even know what the audience participation levels are at, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I don't know. Definitely, uh, you could see like, oh, well, this is all about everybody's got their phones out filming each other. Well, that's you know the I mean? different aspect of it. I mean, you could make the argument that the that the 90s and even the 80s version of that in terms of like punk and metal and hardcore is a is like a communal aspect right if if you wanted to go down that road and that now it's much more a social media experience it's about performing for your periscope and for your mm-hmm. you know your your twitter feed and and all those sorts of things whatever you know medium that people use that it's become less about the community and more about the exposure of the self. Yeah. I think that's what I was reacting to when I saw it. It really was odd. And I just started to question like, okay, well how do, how do rock bands like no rock bands are really doing this. Like you see it, like you mentioned, and I mean like straight, like uh, more traditional, either classic rock or even just straight, even modern rock. You see it. Yeah. You see it, the communal part in the, punk and hardcore and that's been there since the 80s but it just struck me as um, another point at which maybe we're uh what the music we love is going to become dinosaur like like jazz or some other marginalized oh make no mistake we are dinosaurs yeah yeah we we're just waiting for the asteroid whatever the final whatever the final blow is 
<laughs> it was so sad. His band is like, uh, they stand in like, they give him like at the far end of the arena, like they all stand in a row with like their keyboards and whatever they're using to make the music. It just like, it looks like three nerdy people on the far end of the arena, not, you know, completely nondescript standing on like a, um, a bench. Right. <laughs> just like, <clears throat> it's much it's more almost... a theater production because that's how like when you go to like see the, a theater performance, yeah. you know, the, the band is like up in the corners for like, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to see like, you know, I'm not talking about like an, uh, a classic Broadway production where you have an orchestra pit, but I'm talking like if you go see like, you know, Sir Wicked or, 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 yeah. or, or moving out, you know, the Billy Joel, like I saw that a couple years ago and they're just sort of like off in the corners Right, because because yeah. musicality becomes a much less valued commodity when it's about pure performance. Mm-hmm. So, it also reminded me of the uh, like the rave scene in uh, one of the sequels to um, The Matrix. Oh, the second one. I think, I think it, the... it very much reminded me of that. Yeah, there's like an unnecessary like five minute long rave scene. Right. Yeah, it's called they didn't have enough uh, story to fill in. <laughs> so they threw in a a, a rave scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, thought and it then was... tying it back to Moby Howe. Well, I, I I would think he's. I don't see him as a performer that you ne- you necessarily like show up to 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 keep your eyes on him. I mean, he, ah, he's Jay, from I a, might confound you then. He's coming from a uh, a more of a dance club scene, no? So well. Maybe and maybe not. We're going to learn about Moby tonight. I learned things because, Jay, I was not really up on Moby in terms of my knowledge. This is what I knew about Moby. He had that ridiculously successful album, which he licensed every song to a commercial or a movie. Mm. Um, He provided the closing song to every Bourne movie, which is Extreme Ways. That's at the end of every Bourne movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know that he, I follow him on Twitter, excuse me, not Twitter, well, Twitter, and then I also follow him on Instagram. I know he has a restaurant called Little Pine. It's a vegan restaurant in L.A. And that was pretty much it. I mean, I I remember when this album came out because of the cover that's on it, which is the Mission of Burma song, That's When I Reach for My Revolver. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the only song we played at the radio station off of this album. And it was actually my introduction not only to Moby, but... (laughs) Sadly to say, it was my introduction to Mission of Burma as well. Sure, yep. You know, not growing up in the as an '80s alternative kid, I didn't. And Mission of Burma had broken up by this point. Um, I didn't know who they were, so I went back and discovered Mission of Burma in our stacks. Um, that happens. I'm sure right. there's been a lot of bands I've discovered that way too. Sure. So, I never listened to this album all the way through when it came out. We just played the single. I didn't investigate any further. Um, I, you know. I, like a lot of people, were caught off guard by the success of his um, future albums, which would be Play. Play, of course, as far as singles, had um, Porcelain, Southside. Remember the song with Gwen Stefani? Body Rock. I mean, there's there was nine singles released over three years from that record. It was a huge record. It sold uh, 12 million copies. In, two, in 1999. So, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment for that period. And then the follow-up, there was a couple albums in between, but the follow-up, which was called 18, 
was released in in 2002, so three years later. 18 sold like a ridiculous number as well. They're, We're All Made of Stars, Extreme Ways, a couple of the singles off of that one. And uh, I think it sold like five or six million in 2002. So he's sold, I think, somewhere worldwide in like the, you know, 20 million range, all totaled with all those albums. So here's what I didn't know. He actually started out playing in rock bands in the 80s. Did you know that? I knew he had an alternative rock sort of beginning. Yeah. So um, he, but... he played guitar in a, in a punk band called the Vatican Commandos. And then he played in a band called Ultra Vivid Scene, which was a pretty well-respected and well-known band. They were on 4AD around from 87 to 93. Um, they put out three albums. He played on, I believe, the last one, I want to th- say. So shifted from there to making electronic or ambient or whatever you want to call it. But first album, 92, was Moby. Second album, Ambient, 1993. Third album, Everything is Wrong, 1995. So those three solo albums come out. They didn't really do anything. And not only didn't they do anything sales-wise, he wasn't even really getting a lot of press from what I was reading about why he made Animal Rights. So he basically made Animal Rights to just stir up the pot. Like, he knew, look, I people aren't taking this electronic stuff seriously. And if you think about the time frame... 92 to 95 that's not when electronic music was happening in terms of commercial success in the united states you don't have the chemical brothers and the prodigy and those sorts of bands until 96 97 which is when he makes the animal rights record and releases that which is a weird combination of ambient music and hardcore punk rock metal whatever you want to call it and there were people that were like yeah, this guy's done. He's never making another record again. And he even said at the time that he was thinking about quitting music because the the reception was so negative to this record. But he uh, hunkered down, <laughs> made play, and then sold 10 million, 12 million copies of that. The rest is history. So he released Play in 99, 18 in 2002. Hotel came out in 2005. Last Night came out in 2008. In 2009, Wait For Me. 2011 was Destroyed. And Destroyed, from what I read, I haven't listened to it yet, is primarily a acoustic record. I have to, I have to do more. But he describes it as melodic, atmospheric. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not the acoustic one. Maybe that's Wait For Me. I have to go back and look. But one of the records is primarily acoustic guitar. And then um, he released Innocence in 2013. And then if you're looking for something to help you fall asleep, there is an album called Long Ambience One, Calm Sleep, which was released this year. And it's like just track after track of very quiet ambient music. All the tracks are like 15 minutes or longer. So it's like a four hour long album. So that's that's the history of, of, of Moby. I've actually listened. That's a good uh, work album if you need something in the background. But you don't want to listen to lyrics, you throw that on. Right. That's Moby. Always, always a fun review. Yeah, we're not going to do the four-hour-long ambient movie or, or album. I mean, I mentioned that he owns a restaurant. He also has done a lot of work with uh, MoveOn.org, Humane Society. He's a well-known vegan um, farm sanctuary. 
involved in a lot of interesting projects that are music related. He's on the board of directors for the Institute of Music and Neurological Function, which is a nonprofit organization that works towards basically developing clinical treatments for people based on music. So like music therapy, which actually one of my, one of my cousins, um, well, Katie's cousin. So is that my second cousin or is it my cousin-in-law? Cousin-in-law. She, that's her like a job. She's in music therapy. And then he runs a website called Moby Gratis, which is he produces music, puts it up there, and then any independent or nonprofit filmmakers, film students, if they need music for their film, they can use the music from there without any sort of license. So it's a way for, you know, somebody who doesn't have any money, like a film student, to have a song by Moby on their uh, on their movie. So that's just a little bit of the stuff. He's he's interesting and very um, you know, diverse individual in terms of his he's owned some other businesses and he primarily records by himself in his apartment in New York. And in fact, I believe if I go back and look at my notes, I believe Animal Rights, he plays every instrument on Animal Rights except for violin. And it was mixed by Alan Mulder, who worked with a tons of bands, Jesus and Mary Chain, Smashing Pumpkins, that kind of stuff. And oh, oh he also did the um, <laughs> the art direction. He did all the uh, photography for the album. He did, well, not the cover photography, because that's a picture of him as a baby. But he did all the design for the artwork and that kind of stuff. So that's uh, that's what I learned about Moby in terms of uh, his his history and his career. I did mention at the top, Jay, that we got to this album because our Patreon subscribers voted on it. Mm-hmm. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I need to thank Chris Martz, who just joined us at Patreon at the 250 yes. level. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for doing that. You'll be at uh, 12 months, which will be, I guess, July of next year. But in the interim, you know, there are every couple of weeks it sounds like there's going to be opportunities here to vote yeah at least once a month um, we're going to yeah. going to try to do once a month the patreon subscribers are going to have an opportunity to vote on their picks and we're also i'm happy to announce and there'll be this will be posted but as we are approaching our 300th episode we are going to be uh giving away a prize to our patreon subscribers one of our patreon subscribers will be chosen if you are, when that episode comes out, which will be, I believe, the first or second week of November will be the 300th episode. If you are a subscriber, when that episode goes live, whatever Tuesday that is, I'll, I'll, I swear I'll research this and, and post it, uh, you'll take home a copy of the 33 and a third book, Dig Me Out, which is on the Slater Kinney album, which this podcast is named. So that's pretty cool. And, of course, the tie-in is that we interviewed the author of the Dig Me Out book for that episode. So, And it's the actual copy Tim sent me the, to read. Yes, it's been the, handled by both of us. <laughs> that I never – I just uh, bought it on Kindle and, and read it that way. So, so it's, it's, gently, it's gently been touched. Very gently used. I, I read it in like three days, and then I gave it to Jay for like a month in advance, and he never read it. And he had Siri read it to him via <laughs> via the. Now uh, that I know you can do that, I'm all I'm up 
uh, I'm on Kindle like just now. I'm like, oh, I'll go ahead and get that book since I know I can have uh, Siri read it to me on the way to work. What, what voice do you use for Siri? Do you I do you use the British woman? <clears throat> uh, I've been just using the standard one, but I'm gonna play around and choose some others. I like the British woman. I'll try that one. Yeah, She's it's fun. cool because you, you can speed it up. You oh, know, you can. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you got to find the you know. It, the, you got to be able to understand what she's saying and then be able to speed it up. So Right. So, Jay, for our review, uh, I, you know, I mentioned that there's a U.K. release and a U.S. release. For the U.S. release, which is on Spotify, is that the version that you listen to? Well, I, I listen to the Apple Music version, so I would assume it's the same one on Spotify. How many songs on that one? 16? Yes, that's correct. The oh. U.K. version only has 12 songs. Well, you know what's weird is when I was listening to it on my phone – it wasn't playing all 16 tracks. It may have been only been playing 12. And then when I came up and I've listened to it in my office, on, on actually in iTunes, it, it has all 16. So okay, um, I'm not sure what was going on there, but uh, maybe it has something to do with I picked the wrong record on. Maybe the, both are available on iTunes. I'm not sure. Maybe. Who knows? He has so much material. Yes. <laughs> like sorting through the, the albums is insane between all the albums, B-side versions, singles. Right, Just a remixes, slide of stuff there. yes, yes. There's a lot of albums. So let's talk about this one, Jay. Animal Rights, 1996 in the UK, 1997 in the US. Moby, Jay, tell me one thing you liked about this record. I like the. I, I think I like the um, more atmospheric sounds. Mm-hmm. I like the. There was some nice synth and piano stuff on here that I kind of dug. That was that, and when the violin wouldn't be mixed in. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really interesting and um, I think worked pretty well. So I, I tend to be more attracted to those songs. I think the Mission of Burma cover is, is pretty great, but it's a great song. So right. I don't know that I can say it, it's a fine enough cover, but I think at the end of the day, uh, especially when you hear on this record, I think you appreciate how good of a song it is. I gotta say, I, I I really didn't like the record when I first listened to it, except for that song. And then as I got more and more into it, listening to it over and over again, I started to reveal itself a little bit more. Mm. And I think the failure of this record is just that it's really two records. It's a straight up ambient, you know, yeah. like you said, record. And then it's an attempt at like a hardcore metal metallic record that only works in parts mm. and those parts drag down the rest of the record when yeah. he sticks to the short like hardcore songs like heavy flow 
which is only like 155 or or U, yep. which is 230. Those are fine. I've I've no problem with a, a a two or three minute long song like that. Um, he's a competent guitar player. He's an okay singer, which works well for that format. Um, like you, I I enjoyed the ambient stuff. There's a a ten minute long track on here, alone, um, mm-hmm. which is really good. Has a lot of cool elements to it. But then I did like there's a song on here which is really weird that it wasn't successful, which is "Come On Baby." Which sounds mm. like it was very much of the time. Like if you were to be like, "Oh, this was a huge single in like under a huge underground single in 1996," I would have been like, "Yeah, it totally makes sense. It sounds like it would have been," but if it wasn't. My reaction to this song is it's very obvious. In fact, I guess what the thing I'll relate to you is that when I listen to this, I'm like, I've been on Tim's box set. If you don't, if people that listening don't know, Tim was pretty prolific uh, demo creator and writer. And I'm like, I've been on Tim's box set. He has about five songs that sound like this. Like, it's just, it's fine enough, but like it brings together all these sort of like um, alternative rock, groove rock, around a drum loop kind of things. Right. There's parts of it where you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. But generally, it just seems a little, like, obvious, I guess. Um, It's not fully fleshed out, no. And maybe that's where where you're coming from in terms of, like, you know, in some ways I think you can make, yeah, you could make the argument that it it should have been a hit because it very much sounds like 1996, you know? It sounds like... A lot of what was going on and i think that's where now in hindsight i'm like oh well this you know it, it sounds like it was concocted um a little bit in that way right so there's nothing about it that's i mean i guess it's probably the grooviest rock song on the on the record everything else is very metallic and almost industrial sounding mm-hmm. right so in some way I, there's another tune that's a little bit more mid-tempo that I think if he's going to do the rock thing, probably for me at least works a little better. I think that's soft, or or even say it's all mine, which at times kind of has a Deftones kind of vibe to it, where it's quiet and loud, and <clears throat> instead of like doing the guttural screams, he uses like keyboard sounds to do that, which is, I guess, kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I I didn't, I don't love that tune. Uh, come on, baby, but uh, I, I see what you're saying. The Deftones is a good comparison for, like, Say It's All Mine. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But that's that's a strong, you know, their sort of weird combination of, like, shoegaze, you know, big, washed, heavy guitar with this, like, hardcore screaming element. But yet, mm-hmm. it's not as abrasive as some of those 
Like they find a sweet spot that's yep. that's not quite gonna. It's gonna alienate less people. Well, I know it's over, like a waste of mine. Well, I know inside all I, I can't seem to find, like a wasted someone, like a wasted home. Well, I know it's over. I know it's over long. Did you ever slip inside my ozone? I saw it in my eyes. Ever slip into me, baby? I mean, heavy flow is like, you know, you're, you're in motorhead territory in terms of the speed and the riff of the song, you know, um, it's pretty abrasive. Right. And the vocal gets, you know, very angry, very aggro. <laughs> so, yeah, again, I mean, to me, say it's all mine, at least it, it has the element, the guitar elements and the rock elements. But I think it's in a it's in a tempo and an app. It, it, it gets to that ambient kind of thing that does work on the record so to me if he's going to go in the rock direction or try to bring guitars in or whatnot that would be a better way to do it than straight up punk you know or hardcore feeling because it's like i mean punk punk drummers yeah they in in some of that stuff the it it does sound like very like machine-esque like that's kind of the point but at the heart of it it's a human being doing it right so you don't lose touch of that when you just have a drum machine do it, you lose that charm. Well, it turns into ministry and that yeah, kind of stuff. right. And I'm like, well, I just I'll just go listen to ministry. Or there's times in here where you, there's the you know it, it'll get it'll sound a little bit like filter or a little bit like Nine Inch Nails. And I think I don't know. You tell me if I'm if you disagree with this, but at those times I thought, well, I think those bands do this better than that. So what what am I to make of this? Yeah, he doesn't have the, you know, for as you know, dark and ominous and and disturbing as Trent Reznor can be, he's a great pop songwriter in terms of finding right. the books. Right. And on this record, at least, he doesn't have those hooks when he's trying to be heavy and dark and. Well, that, so that gets to my point about that's when I reach for my revolver. Like right. that's when they he's got the hook. He's got the. There's a compelling lyric. There is a bit of a dark, you know, kind of tinge to it, um, both musically and lyrically. But the problem with me with that song is that all that does is just shine a light on the the lack of songwriting on the rest of this record. You know, it's music, and you can argue whether it's compelling music or not. But in terms of songwriting, you took a really well-written song, stuck it in the middle of the record, which just makes me start to analyze it analyze your songs you know right it's like putting a beatles cover on your album you better got some pretty damn good songwriting on your record otherwise the contrast will be stark it just shows how bad the rest of the record now what's interesting is that when they released that single mtv and and the bbc both said they wouldn't play it because of the lyric so Mm -hmm. they he changed the lyrics to that's when i realize it's over as instead of that's when I reach for my revolver. Oh, yeesh. Yeah. That's some credibility. 
Well, his argument was, I can basically do what I want. The lyrics are once I I'm writing, once I'm playing and recording the song, it you know I can interpret him as I please. One of the interesting things is that he would write like little screeds, like little like paragraphs in his liner notes about various topics. And he had a list, what he called last minute maxims, which was like these little like one liner thoughts. And one of the one, the, one of the last minute maxims was freedom of speech is absolute and invalid. And yet he didn't, he basically was like, Oh, my freedom of speech is being violated. Well, I'll just change my lyric, change the lyrics to this song. And that way, uh, I could still get it played. But I just get the feeling at the time he was not in a good headspace anyways. Mm-hmm. Because uh, from what I read, he toured with Soundgarden when they were when they had put out Down for the Upside. And pretty much the fans for Soundgarden were like just berating him. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine this going well, going over well. I mean, you think where Soundgarden was with Down on the Upside after the success of Super Unknown? Yeah. I mean, you're you're trafficking with a pretty mainstream audience at that point. I mean, right. you're you're not just dealing with the alternative guys going to sub pop shows. You're you're go, dealing with the Budweiser crowd at that point. Well, and that brings me to I think you know a, this is going to be a bit of a cynical take on this record, but I think what you're saying it is the truth, right? That is the reaction to the record, which makes me, as I'm listening to it, think who who is this for? Who's the audience for this record? Like, who is he trying to connect to? And all I can really come up with is music critics. Like, who else would be? And when I say music, or, or and when I say music critics, I don't just mean professional music critics. I think people like us, like people who think critically about music and are like sort of address, approaching it at a different level than a normal person would in terms of just you know you like what you like and there's maybe it's a couple different genres, but for the most part. You don't overthink it. You just enjoy it. I mean, I think we, even if we weren't doing this show, we very much are overthinking. Yeah. Uh, same way somebody who is being paid to do this would. So again, I'm I'm left with okay, well, who's the audience for this? And I'm left with music critics, which, you know, when you go out and try to play this live, or well, you know, what do you do? Who do you tour with? What, what exactly? How do you expect like a normal person to be able to consume this? You know, in terms of you go from something that's very ambient and, and almost made to be ignored or set a background, and then you've got stuff that's like a sledgehammer to your face. Right. You know, uh, what am I to make of this as a musical listener? Now, as a critic, you know, you can see the art in that. You can appreciate the uh, taking risks. You know, I can analyze it to see all of those things. But I think somebody who's not approaching that level is going to be lost so yeah i mean it just uh I, at the end of the day when you look back on stuff albums like this you just scratch your head of like well what what are you trying to do you know what i mean like you'd like to think that most artists are trying to connect with you know just regular people but i can't say with a record like this that that it could i just don't think there's a possibility for that to happen no and i think when we get to our when we get to our final you know thoughts on this record sort of clarify all that uh jay when you're uh thinking about this in its totality were the album better ep decent single 
how does that uh, end up for you? I'm at an EP. I mean, I think that, like you said, there's there's at least two records here, if not more. So I would probably pick on the more atmospheric side. Uh, I could come up with at least a handful of tunes and mix in maybe one or two that has the rock stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the biggest thing with the rock part, uh, the rock elements, is that uh, even in the atmospheric stuff, though, like he's not that great of a guitar player. Right. And I think he. Uh, so one of the tunes that that is more atmospheric and builds and um, it gets a uh, face it, is ten minutes long. It has a long guitar solo in it. Um, he he has some really nice leads on this record, you know, here and there, that are melodic. But anytime he tries to do three minutes of soloing, he's not that good. And I just don't want to hear a very like average guitar player solo for three minutes. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who wants to hear that? You want to hear Jay Mass's solo for three minutes. Right. You don't want to hear I mean, Moby. This is very rudimentary, like, scales and stuff, and you're just yeah, not working. So I, 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 I think I can make an EP out of this record. I'll agree with you. I, I think that you could probably do a double EP. And one of the like two five song EPs, one of them could be ambient, and then the other one could be like I don't even know if another five song EP. But there's definitely like there's almost a worthy album out of the sixteen songs if you were to do like a nine song album. I think, but it, it's that's really hard. Maybe even that. But yeah. I'd probably be more sticking with the, you know, the, like you said, the ambient electronic stuff, and then. That's when I reach my revolver, like we both said, is a, is a a good cover, and then you know a couple of the other tunes that are heavier. I, I did dig "Come On Baby." I think it needs to be shorter, but it, I, I like what it was going for. And then you know you could pick something like "Say It's All Mine" or or um, "Heavy Flow" and and do a single or you know an EP or a twelve inch. Maybe we need to add that. You need a 12-inch single, so you can fit uh, two or three songs per side. Yeah, this it's especially the U.S. version is so overly long. It's 70 something minutes, and it's just it's not necessary to uh, to put to pack that much on there. But again, CDs can do what you want with uh, 78, 59, or whatever it was. Yeah, no kidding. So that's uh, two EPs of varying lengths. For myself and Jay on Moby's Animal Rights. Want to remind everybody. I was just going to add one last thing. The sequence in this record is bonkers. Oh, yeah. Um, They're at track 11 and 12 are both 10 minutes apiece. And once you get through through that 20 minutes of music, you still have four songs left. Yes. (laughs) Make sense of that. You can't. Oh, and by the way, um, the UK version which was only 12 songs and only had one of the 10 minute long songs comes mm. with a bonus CD. I'd l- I, I kind of wish we would have reviewed that one. Maybe it makes more sense. It might be. It does, but it comes with a bonus CD of entirely ambient tracks with no drums. Mm. It's, which is yeah. 49 minutes long. So mm. there you go. So even, yeah. even when on the short album, he still made it long by adding a double, another album to it so there you go uh want to remind everybody if you want to get on get in on the voting for the albums that we review on patreon join us over at patreon.com backslash 
Dig Me Out, and you can, or Dig Me Out podcast, and you can uh, vote on albums we're going to review. You're going to get previews of upcoming records. You're going to get bonus material from the episodes that we record. Usually interviews and roundtables have a lot of bonus stuff. And, of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. We do appreciate it when you do. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.